Hey, Bettys. Welcome to the Better Podcast. It's your host, Dr. Stephanie. It is geeky magic time where I step away from the interviews and just talk to you. It's just going to be me and you today. And these episodes, I'm going to bring you personal insights, frequently asked questions, topic du jour in a more condensed, quick, and actionable way. I go hard on the geek, wrap it up with sprinkles and magic for you to do and be better. Hey, hey, Bettys. Well, looks like we have a bit of a theme this week around glucose and sugar, because I want to follow up the conversation, this Monday's episode conversation with Dr. Casey Means, and follow it up with some sugar science. So we're going to talk about glucose, we're going to talk about fructose today, and we're going to talk about some of the changes that it has on our metabolism and on our brain. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. And there are many different types of sugar, right? But we're going to be talking about specifically glucose and fructose today. And we've talked about uh, glucose and fructose in on the podcast before, uh, the conversation that I had with Dr. Robert Lustig, which has already made its way into the top 10 of my episodes, very popular episodes. You guys really loved it. And I thought that we might continue that conversation today. So when we are talking about glucose, it is important to establish, of course, that glucose is the molecule of life. Every single cell in our body uses glucose and it's when glucose is absent, we can draw from glycogen stores to make glucose through the process of glycogenolysis and we can synthesize glucose um, from exogenous substrates, obviously from carbohydrates and also from proteins via gluconeogenesis, which is just the making, you know, when you break that word down, it just means the making of new glucose. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, I wanted to start our conversation today by highlighting fructose, because I think most people think that it's relatively benign. It sort of just acts just like glucose. And in fact, it really does have quite a a different, it has a different impact both on our brain, which we'll talk about, but also on our hormones. And in particular, uh, I want to talk about a couple of metabolic hormones. So I want to talk about fructose's impact on ghrelin signaling. So ghrelin um, is our hunger hormone secreted by the stomach. Think of a gremlin, sounds like ghrelin, gremlin in the stomach. It signals that it's time to eat, okay? And when we look at the differences between glucose and fructose, so for example, when you have, let's say an exogenous uh, substrate of energy, you have some carbohydrates, maybe you have some you know, proteins and fats in your meal. When you put glucose in the stomach, the, your hormone, that hunger hormone, ghrelin, is going to go down. So it's like, thanks a lot. I got what I needed. <laughs> you know, um, I am, I don't need to be around her anymore. And ghrelin goes away. By contrast, when you put fructose in the stomach, the ghrelin signaling does not change. And what happens is, of course, um, you know, when you're consuming this glucose, your brain doesn't know that you've eaten it, right? That, that, that ghrelin signaling doesn't attenuate. And of course, inevitably, what happens is you end up 
eating more. And that excess energy, which we're going to talk about in the context of the liver in a moment, um, but that excess energy is uh, has two fates, right? So one, if you are moving, so if you are, you know, let's say going for a walk or you're exercising or there's some type of demand from the myocyte, we can bring the sugar in to be burned or as it is the case with most consumption of fructose, there's going to be lipogenesis and it's going to be stored as fat. So lipo uh, and genesis, meaning the making of new fat. So we know that it has um, effects on your ghrelin signaling, which is your hunger hormone. It also, fructose also has effects on your leptin uh, hormone, which is a leptin is a fat derived, um, hormone secreted from the adipose tissue. And it does a couple of different things. I've talked about leptin and leptin resistance, um, extensively in my book, the Betty body. But in the context of leptin, I actually want to talk about, um, the, the impact that it has on brain development and cognition. So when we are consuming a lot of fructose, so fructose, um, and actually I apologize, I didn't mention this at the outset of our conversation, but when we look at the difference between glucose and fructose, so um, glucose is a six carbon ring structure. It's like a circle of carbons and fructose is a five carbon ring structure. So even though they sort of look like cousins and they are, they are metabolized quite differently um, in the body. So when we're consuming a lot of fructose, um, we are inducing um, um, insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia, so an increased secretion of insulin from the beta cells in the pancreas. And this will... eventually block leptin's action. So, so leptin is such a cool, is such a cool hormone. So it's involved in, um, in the Betty body, I say leptin says, put the fork down, right? So it's, it's involved in satiety and feeling full. So ghrelin and leptin sort of act like yin and yang, right? Ghrelin is secreted. It's like, Hey, I'm hungry, right? You eat and leptin's like, Hey, we're done eating. Um, but leptin also has other, um, impacts on brain development and cognition. So when you are consuming too much fructose, it will block leptin's actions to essentially, um, permit neurons to branch out and connect. Like it's literally preventing dendritic, um, like um, the dendrites are basically branches of the neurons that make other little connections. If you actually look, if you were, if you ever lie at the bottom of a tree, as I often do, and you look up at the, uh, at the, at the tree branches, there's, if you look at, there's sort of the main trunk and then you get these sort of larger branches. And then you, if you follow a branch all the way to the end or a tree all the way to the end, it, it makes all of these smaller little branches. That's actually very similar to to our brain structure when we think of that about this in the context of dendrites. And actually, uh, just to be a little word nerd here, dendrite, which is the branching of these neurons, it has its root word dendros from the Greek word tree. So dendritic communication. So when you have too much fructose consumption, it will prevent neurons from making these communications between each other, which of course can lead to numerous cognitive deficits. We've talked to, we've talked to Dr. Um, Dale Bredesen on the podcast with Alzheimer's and this lack of total neuronal volume and lack of, um, you know, both gray matter and white matter volume. Of course, um, last week's Geeky Magic, I was talking about some of the changes that we see in menopause and the grit and the brain with the gray and the white matter. And when you're consuming a lot of fructose, it is literally going to kibosh your brain's volume. And and wait, there's more. Um, fructose also um, inhibits, and you guys all know how much I love this baby. Um, it inhibits brain-derived neurotrophic factor (BDNF). So, if you um, if you're new to that term, uh, BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor is essentially miracle growth for the brain. So, it promotes neurogenesis, which is the birth of new neurons. And that usually will happen in the gray matter of the brain. And it's also neuroprotective, meaning that it protects the stuff that you already have. And fructose inhibits 
BDNF in places like the hippocampus. Now the hippocampus um, is a um, it's a memory center. So learning and memory is often attributed to this area in the brain called the hippocampus. And this is um, th- this is a problem, right? So when we think about often when we uh, if if you look at surveys, you know people would rather get diseases like cancer or have strokes than get diseases like Alzheimer's because we know one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's in terms of its clinical presentation is that it not only selectively targets the hippocampus, but it essentially erases your life from your memory banks. And I cannot think, like I'm actually like kind of getting a little choked up even saying this, like I cannot even think of a worse disease than having lived for 70 years or 80 years or 90 years and literally not remembering the people around you. Like that is just the most cruel twists of fate. And a lot of that is driven by excess fructose consumption. Not done yet, unfortunately. Um, so I also want to talk about fructose in terms of brain, in terms of the reward centers, um, that it, the effects that it has on the reward centers of the brain. Now, obviously we know glucose is metabolized in the brain for energy and even in a state of ketosis. So even when you are using ketone bodies as the primary substrate for energy in the brain, there is still going to be some baseline glucose metabolism in the brain. We know that like your brain will never 100% run on ketone bodies. Um, So when we look at glucose, for example, um, and we take pictures of um, the areas that, you know, metabolize glucose, um, we are going to see that, you know, areas in the brain, like the sensory motor cortex. So basically um, the motor cortex, which is sort of at the front uh, part of the brain, the sensory cortex, which is just kind of right behind it. Um, those are really big glucose uh, gobblers and we'll also see, um, a high affinity in the basal ganglia. Now, fructose, on the other hand, will specifically light up. So if you're looking at this on a functional MRI, for example, it's going to specifically light up, um, the reward center. And you may have heard the, the, the saying, you know, sugar is as bad for you as cocaine. And the reason, and we want to get a little bit more specific because it's not necessarily glucose, although excess glucose can have a hedonic nature to it. And it usually comes, uh, it's actually hard to, it, with real whole foods to have a lot of glucose, unless you're like literally throwing back like, you know, gallons of blackberries and it's like, okay, the fiber is going to help with the satiety signal. Like it's going to be gross, right? Um, but when we are having processed foods, which almost all processed foods, so if it comes in a bag, it comes in a box or it's wrapped, like basically you can't pick it from a tree or harvest it from a leaf or pull it from the ground. Um, this is a processed food. Okay. So fructose is, has been shown to induce the same physiology, like to light up these reward centers that, um, more hedonic items like, you know, cocaine and heroin and nicotine and alcohol, um, also generates. So it's not necessarily that whole foods, like, you know, foods that have glue that are glucose containing will, um, light up these areas. It's more specifically the processed sugar, like the fructose that is going to have, um, uh, this addictive type of behavior. And if you listen to the geeky magics, like the good Betty that you are, of course, you know, that in previous geeky magics, I've talked about desire and dopamine and the interplay between that feeling and what happens to the brain, like what that dopaminergic response is. And when you're ingesting lots and lots of fructose, these, like these compounds that are lighting up these reward signals, you're also going to get a flurry of dopamine secretion. In other words, you are going to want to repeat the behavior, right? That brought about that dopaminergic secretion in the first place, in the first place, pardon me. So if it was a, you know, processed food, uh, you are much more likely, much more likely to seek out that food again and again and again in order to get that dopamine hit. It's it's like the metabolic equivalent of getting a thousand likes on Instagram at, in one time, right? You're going to be like, hey, wow, that felt really great. What, you know, what is it that I did? What did I post on Instagram that got me those likes? 
I should do that again. Same is true with the food. You're like, Hey, that felt really great. What is it about those chips or that, you know, those cookies or that whatever, um, that made me, you know, that made me feel so good. I want to go and do that again. Now, interestingly, um, because our bodies, like we must have reverence for the feedback loops that our body has, the more sugar that you give to someone. So the more fructose that you might give or processed sugar that you give someone, or even literally just the white powdery stuff, there is, there's a desensitization, um, that happens. So this like down regulation of response, uh, to the food so that the more that we have it, the more that we have sugar, right? Your taste buds actually become desensitized, right? It doesn't feel, it doesn't taste quite as sweet. And uh, this is actually one of the re- one of the things I often hear in people who have gone through my Estima diet is that you know they they do the keto they lower the carbohydrates you know for an extended period of time or what have you and then maybe they go to a wedding for example or they go to a family function or there's a celebratory event and they have let's say a piece of wedding cake or some cheesecake whatever it is and what they'll come back and report to me the next week is like hot damn that was so insulting to my palate like it was so sweet and gross that i couldn't finish it and what the what my what my ladies will often report is like in previous, like pr- prior to starting the Estima diet, I could have had two or three pieces of pie, right? I could have had two or three slices of ke- cheesecake or two or three pieces of wedding um, cake because what happens, of course, is when you don't have those sweets and then you reintroduce it to the diet, you are so sensitized to the sweet that it's almost, it's like a, it's like an insult to your palate. It's an insult to your palate versus when you are constantly having those sweets, there's this deep desensitization that happens. So you need to eat more to get the same hit, right? And of course, you know, there's this dissatisfaction that you get with just one piece of wedding cake, right? You need to have another and perhaps even another in order to get that same dopaminergic response that you once did. And of course, this is very true for the neurochemical cascade as well, right? There's a desensitization of the dopamine receptors because the dopamine receptors become less sensitive because it's like, oh, this old song song and dance again. Like here's the cheesecake song and dance again. Like I can't always be given this girl all the dopamine all the times. I'm sure that's exactly what the meeting between the dopamine receptors you know, happen, right? So it's it's an interesting phenomenon because when we are consuming fructose on the regular, it's obviously it's very difficult to realize that this is happening, that this desensitization is happening, but it can and uh, like and predictably and necessarily does in order to conserve uh, in many ways the dopamine system. And the the last thing I, I want to mention in terms of brain health, um, because you know, I, you know, I love to talk about the brain, especially as it relates to women, is this um, this brain metabolism, fructose will alter brain metabolism in, uh, in so in that it will affect our astrocytes. So when we think about the brain, we have sort of two main, uh, um, this is clearly an oversimplification, but we have two types of cells. We have neurons, uh, which I've talked about, uh, neuronal cells and the gray white matter and the axons, uh, extending into the white matter. Uh, and then we also have, um, almost the supporting cells, if you will. Uh, these are called the astrocytes, right? And this will comprise of many different types of um, cells, but they basically nourish and protect the neurons. And we know that we have more astrocytes than we do neurons. And what happens is when we're consuming lots and lots of fructose, we are driving a couple of important metabolic processes that I wanted to discuss. Glycation in particular, oxidative stress, and mitochondrial damage. Now, you may have heard of these uh, these words before, um, so this may be a bit of a review for you, but glycation is essentially the reason why we age. It is the wrinkles that we get, it's the gray hairs that we get, it's the cataracts in the eyes, it's the, uh, it's the stiff joints, and basically, um, glycation, uh, we're going to talk about this in the context of the Maillard reaction, um, is, is the accelerator, um, to aging. So 
what is the mayored reaction? Um, happens in all of us. Um, but basically, the mayored reaction needs uh, two molecules essentially to occur. It needs a carbohydrate. So it's either going to be a glucose or fructose, and it also needs an amino acid. And when you, when you have these two things together, the protein will start to essentially brown and become less flexible. So the protein um, loses its flexibility. Uh, it can become deformed. Uh, it can fold in on itself. There's a lot of different things that can happen with a glycated um, cell. And so the question with the Maillard reaction in particular, this browning that happens when you have a, like a, an amino acid and a fructose molecule or amino acid or excess glucose is that it's, it's going to happen at an accelerated rate. Now, remember I mentioned glucose has a six member structure ring. So it's, it's more stable than the five, uh, the five carbon member ring uh, of fructose. So it will engage in this Maillard reaction uh, slower than the fructose, that five member carbon ring. And the five member carbon ring having one less carbon than six is much more easily broken apart. And what we know is that fructose, when we have a glycated um, protein with fructose, it will engage in the Maillard reaction seven times faster seven times faster than glucose. Um, and I believe that we always talk about, you know, dogs that we talk about, like their dog years, like one of their years is like seven of ours. Well, that's, that's actually what happens with glucose. We are living, we are living like dogs, right? We basically are aging at a rate of seven times faster um, than we really should. And of course, um, it also is going to generate more oxygen radicals. So this is kind of leading me into my conversation around um, oxidative stress. But before, before, I, before I get there, um, if you recall, if you've listened to my conversation with Dr. Robert Lustig, you may have heard him say, and it's you know rather crude, but it's it's true. You know, and this is in the context of the Maillard reaction that you know you can put a chicken in the oven and you'll see it brown. Let's say you put it, you know the the temperature is 450 degrees Fahrenheit and, you know, the chicken browns over the course of like 45, let's call it to 60 minutes, maybe a little bit longer, uh, depending on your oven strength, but let's call it 60 minutes for, um, just for round numbers. And he also says, you know, albeit crudely that humans also brown, but we brown at the rate of 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And we do that for about 72 years or so. Right. So, eh, you know, kind of a fun visual or not so fun visual. Um, but that's how, but that's how we age, right? We, we engage in this Maillard reaction. And if we are consuming more crap, right? More of the carbo, you know, the carbonated beverages, the Coca-Colas and the artificial sweeteners and the processed foods and all that kind of stuff, we are going to be increasing glycation and accelerating that Maillard reaction. And just a little special props out to my hero, Cristiano Ronaldo, who uh, I don't know if many of you follow uh the uh, follow soccer at all, but he was just recently at a press junket and was sitting, saw these two bottles of Coca-Cola and was so disgusted by their presence near him. He moved them exactly out of frame and then declared to the, uh, to the camera, drink water, not Coke. Um, so, you know, we need more superstars like Ronaldo who, um, who are not afraid uh, to make statements like that because clearly when you are an athlete, you're not drinking garbage like that nutritionally toxic, absolute uh, hogwash. So, um, but I digress. A um, little bit of current news for you there if you're following Euro. So let's let's move on to um, oxidative stress. So I was talking a little bit about this Maillard reaction generating lots and lots of oxygen radicals. And this is what we call oxidative stress. Now, oxidative stress is one of the trade-offs for cellular respiration. You cannot avoid it. You are always going to produce a certain amount of reactive oxygen species and oxidants as a result of um, producing ATP, which is our energetic currency um, in the cell. So it is part and parcel. It is normal part of the Krebs cycle, but it is, it is really the imbalance of these reactive oxygen species 
and our own baked in antioxidant defense system that I'm referring to here. So we have our own antioxidant defense system, um, which will sort of scavenge out and neutralize these ROS, these reactive oxygen species. And so through normal respiration, you know, you have, let's say you, let's say with glucose, um, because that's very well known, very well documented. Of course, we consume, let's say carbohydrates, the end uh, product of that through the breakdown in the digestive system is glucose. Glucose then goes through glycolysis, um, becomes pyruvate. And then assuming the energetic needs of that cell don't exceed the um, energetic capacity of the Krebs cycle, the pyruvate will enter the Krebs cycle, eventually will go through the um, electron transport chain to produce ATP. This is called oxidative phosphorylation, okay? Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. So this is... Um one of the one of the things I want to highlight here is that in each of our cells, we have these um, like these sort of uh, not sort of they are <laughs> subcellular organelles. They're called um, peroxisomes, and this is where that natural baked in antioxidant defense system lives. And they are designed to essentially quash and quench right incoming oxygen radicals and basically render them. Um, in inert so that they don't have that, um, they don't have the capacity to muck up the system and muck up the cell. But it is that it is the, it is the ratio. So if we, if we now have more oxygen radicals, so now we are speeding up that Mayard reaction. We are, you know, continuing to consume fructose unknowingly. We are, we are producing and spitting out more of these, um, oxygen radicals, then eventually this is going to outnumber the antioxidant defense system that we have. And this is now going to produce oxidative distress. Now, a certain amount of oxidative stress, I'm of the opinion, is actually really great for our cells because when we are going through normal cellular respiration and we are having these reactive oxygen species, of course, it is going to tell our cells to level up and to fortify our natural antioxidant defense system. But when it, this, these oxygen radicals will supersede the ratio of our own natural antioxidants, it's going to cause that cellular dysfunction, right? It's going to cause structural damage to um, lipids, to the lipid layer of the cell, to proteins, to our DNA. And in the extreme, it's going to cause cell apoptosis or cell death. And of course, when this happens in the liver or this happens in the pancreas, you get diabetes, right? So this is, you know, and this is kind of a side note here. This is part of the reason why I advocate in my Estima diet that we need to be consuming vegetables and fruits that have colors. And I specifically say vegetables and fruits and not fruits and vegetables, because some people will just hear fruits and they'll say, oh, I should just have tons and tons of pineapple or tons and tons of strawberries or whatever. And it's, no, you should need to be having your vegetables first and then fruits after. So you want to be consuming vegetables that have colors because the color, so things like, think like of the greens in the green leafy vegetables, the beautiful red um, in peppers. These are an indication that these plants contain antioxidants. Okay. So fruits, oh, I should say vegetables and fruits with 
color. And no, I don't agree with the current narrative that we need to eliminate vegetables and fruits from the diet. I think that vegetables are important. Uh, And of course, as I say that, I realize that there is nuance to that, um, especially when it comes to certain anti uh, autoimmune conditions. But generally, for the general population, I would say we need more vegetables. Um, pretty easy to get fruits now, right? They come in those plastic, um, even though I don't like that they come in those plastic boxes, but they come in those plastic containers. Vegetables, we need a little bit more work, right? Like you can get the peppers, you can get the cucumbers, but then they don't just magically peel themselves. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be great? Magically peel themselves or cut and chop themselves. You have to you have to do that work, um, which is where I find most people... Um, they tend to, you know, they'll buy the cucumber and then they throw it out four days later because it's gone bad. And so the last piece of cellular dysfunction that I wanted to address with excess glucose, but specifically fructose, is that it damages the gift that you got from your mama. And that is your mitochondria. Now, what a great Mother's Day card wouldn't that be, right? So, you know, the saying, you know, it's like, shake what your mama gave you. Well, what your mama gave you was your mitochondria, right? That's the only thing that daddy can't give you. Your mother gives you your mitochondria. This is your bacterial lineage, comes from mama. Okay. And if you are drowning your mitochondria in fructose, mitochondrial dysfunction ensues, right? And truly when you hear doctors um, like myself or, you know, doctors um, speaking about chronic disease, what we're actually talking about is mitochondrial dysfunction. They are one and the same. So aside from the obvious signs, like, you know, the brain fog, the fatigue, the memory issues, joint pain, sluggishness, all all those things that indicate poor energy, signs of poor mitochondrial dysfunction uh, on labs are reflected in high uric acid levels and high homocysteine levels. And I, I'm reminded of my anatomy teacher who also always used to say homocysteine. I don't know why, but it's still, it's still in my brain, but homocysteine and homocysteine should be completely cleared from the bloodstream. Okay. Um, otherwise it's going to build up and it's going to irritate the blood uh, vessel and it's going to cause, um, inflammation. And of course, high uric acid. Um, now I know, um, Dr. Uh, David Perlmutter, who's also been on the pod, I know he's writing a book on, I mean, the title of his book is Drop Acid, which is so clever. Uh, I'm assuming that he's talking about uric acid. Um, and I think that uh, I can't wait to have him on the pod really to, to discuss that. But we really want to be thinking about our uric acid levels. And I write about uric acid levels as well in the Betty Body. We really want to make sure that if you are getting them checked, that they are under five milligrams per deciliter. Now, don't worry, I'm going to talk all about some labs that you can do in this podcast as well, but just wanted to throw that um, in there as well. And so all of this talk about the oxidation, the mitochondrial dysfunction, um, the glycation, the changes in brain function, the hedonic activation of brain centers, the derangement of our metabolic hormones like ghrelin and leptin. This is why it's important to highlight why this valiantly defended archaic view that a calorie is a calorie is just simply oversimplistic and and marred, right? You know, f- you know, fructose and glucose, they have the equivalent caloric assignment to them, right? But their effects on the brain and the body appear to be quite different. And, you know, this calorie is not a calorie. I mean, you can also bring that down to a carb is not a carb, right? For decades, the American Heart Association, um, emphasis intended, the American Diabetes Association and the American Medical Association, they advocated for a low fat diet, right? And obviously by definition, that means a high protein diet. And I'm not sure that that's such a good trade, right? I'm not sure um, that that's such a good trade because when you know when we look at carbohydrates, it's not just like there's one kind. It's just like when you say, women. <laughs> it's like, uh, hello, we are not this monolith. We're not all the same. Some of us are tall. Some of us are, you know, short. Some of us are big breasted. Some of us are, you know, president of the itty bitty titty committee. Some of us have thyroid dysfunction. Some of us have mitochondrial insufficiency. We have genetic polymorphisms that are different. Some of us have PCOS and some of us have estrogen dominance and on and on and on she goes, right? The same is true of a carbohydrate. You know what I mean? Like first, sugar and starch. 
both carbohydrates. That like so different, right? Sugars are, you know, monosaccharides and disaccharides, right? One or two, mono, di, right? One or two molecules. A starch is a polymer. So more than two, right? Poly, many, right? Many molecules. And, you know, sugar either, um, they have to, um, they either have one bond or no bonds to break. So they're digested oh so very easily, right? And absorbed oh so very easily from the duodenum. And especially, especially, especially if they've just been, if they're um, uh, like processed foods, like they've been liberated, right? From the food matrix. So they don't come with fibers. They don't come uh, with fats. They don't come with protein. So I'm talking about the Coca-Colas or shall we say sodas, right? Not to name any names, but Coca-Cola, fruit juice, alcohol, alcohol, right? Or if you, if you listen to this Monday's um, episode, Dr. Casey Mean called them naked carbs, which I really liked. And usually carbs don't actually, with the very few exception of, I mean, even fruit, fruit has fiber. I'm trying to think of where carbohydrates are just glucose. It is very, very rare. And of course, when we look at sugars, easily, like easily digested, easily absorbed starches, more bonds, right? And uh, by by their very nature, digested and absorbed much slower. And then even within starches, guys, like even <laughs> within starches, different types of starches, right? I've talked a lot about resistant starches. So uh, these are starches that resist digestion. Sometimes they're called um, uh, prebiotic uh, fibers. They act as food sources for the microbiome which then spit out uh, short chain fatty acids. Uh, We also have uh, amylose, right? So these are more like brown food, uh, brown foods like um, beans and legumes and lentils. And then we have the amylopectins, right? These are, um, we, we find these in like, like they're called the white devils, right? It's like the wheat, the pasta, the bread, the rice, the potatoes and stuff. So these are carbs that are generally absorbed much quicker. So amylose, the brown foods, right? The beans, the lentils, that stuff tend to be better for you. And I have some, I have some thoughts about uh, lentils and legumes that we'll like for the sake of time, we'll leave out for now. But basically the, it takes, it's much slower in terms of its digestion, much slower in terms of its absorption. And of course, therefore is going to have a different insulinergic response. Whereas the amylopectin, those white devils, right? They are going to basically release glucose. um, Or if you're having some processed foods, it's going to be fructose much faster. Um, It's going to flood the liver, like literally going to flood the liver. And she's going to be like, what the hell guys? Like what, what's all this fructose going to be here? What's doing here and generate a bigger insulin response. So Like I I say this because I hate this, a calorie is a calorie argument. I really like, is a strong word uh, to use the H word, but I do hate it because it is so simple and it is, it just demonstrates like flea brain thinking. Okay. It's just like, you can't say women are like this. Men are like this, right? Because we know that each woman is you know, we are, first of all, we're not little men, right? But there's different hormonal, even within the same woman, she has a varying and ever-changing hormonal milieu, not only in her reproductive years, but over the arc of her life, she has genetic predispositions, epigenetic factors that we don't. So this, this thing like, oh, calories are just calories. Like, please sit down and stop talking. So, um, (laughs) I shall get off my soapbox and continue with what I wanted to tell you. Um, which is coming back to fructose, which is, uh, you know, we, we talked this week with Casey around, um, monitoring glucose. Like it's really easy to monitor glucose, right? So you can, if you wanted to look at your, you know, in a blood draw, you might look at HbA1c or hemoglobin A1c, which is measuring glycation. Um, we talked with uh, Casey around levels, which is a continuous glucose monitor. And of course there are others, but levels is really uh, looking like it is uh, just, you know, the board of directors is just like this, a star studded uh, lineup of uh, many better guests actually. Um, and 
we can, we know, you know, when we, when we do, uh, you know, blood draws, when we do breath tests, even like if you could, if you use the lumen, for example, you know how many ketone bodies you're producing, right? So we can directly measure things like glucose and ketone bodies, but we cannot directly measure fructose. And this is because, and this is important for you to understand, because this is where people get a little messed up. Like, isn't it just the same thing? Like, isn't it just go through the same, you know, metabolic pathway? No. Fructose can only be metabolized in the liver. So there's kind of this like backdoor metabolism that fructose has. And that's because the liver has a a special transporter. It's called the GLUT5 transporter. We won't get into those details um, now uh, because I I suspect that there's only two people listening to the podcast at this point. Um, But every time uh, a fructose molecule uh, enters a liver cell, it has to be phosphorylated. So just hang on with the science for me. We're going to talk a little science right now. But basically that means that the fructose has to, we have to add a phosphate group to it, so it ha- which is called phosphorylation. So enters through the GLUT5 transporter, fructose is phosphorylated, and now it goes from fructose to fructose 1-phosphate. So the phosphate is bound at the first carbon, the first uh, position. And the phosphate, so remember I said that it has to be phosphorylated, we add a phosphate group to it. It's donated from ATP. So if you remember ATP, this is adenosine triphosphate. So triphosphate, three phosphates, it gives up one of its phosphates for this damn fructose. Okay. So your energy is being sacrificed here for fructose metabolism. And so now we have ATP lost one of its P's, right? Sounds like a Dr. Seuss novel. And now ATP becomes, God, I'm such a nerd. ATP becomes ADP, adenosine di phosphate. Okay. And then it will also, so ADP now is also going to lose another P. So it's going to go to AMP. So now we're at adenosine monophosphate. Then it it downgrades again to inositol monophosphate. So it's IMP. And then finally to uric acid. Okay. So I know that was a lot, um, but I wanted to, um, tell you why uric acid is related to fructose consumption. And of course, we know in the literature that serum uric acid, so if we have that uric acid level higher than five milligrams per deciliter, uh, particularly in children and adolescents, um, this correlates with sugary beverage consumption. This correlates with anxiety. It correlates with uh, attention deficit disorder inability to focus. And there have been other researchers specifically around uric acid um, showing that uric acid is also an inhibitor of something called endothelial nitric oxide oxide synthase, pardon me, which is basically the, um, uh, it's like the ability for our our arteries to vacillate and dilate. So it's the ability, it causes essentially stiffness in the artery. So it restricts the ability of the artery to be more flexible and pliable. So when we measure serum uric acid levels, that can give you an indirect idea of how well your liver is metabolizing fructose. Okay. And, you know, if you're consuming, maybe you're consuming too much fructose, uh, et cetera. So I wanted to give you a couple of action items. I know this has been a little science-y, a little, um, <laughs> a little nerd sermon here, but um, I wanted to talk a little bit about some labs that you might explore. So I've already given you uh, the serum uric acid uh, under five milligrams per deciliter. We also want to look at some, I also like to look at liver, uh, the transferases. So there are two transferases uh, in particular. One is ALT or alanine aminotransferase. And this is relative, like it's relatively standard. It's not like a specialized test or whatever. And it's reasonably sensitive, reasonably specific for measuring the degree of liver fat. Because the other thing I haven't gotten into, but you should listen to the conversation with Dr. Robert Lustig, is that X excess fructose consumption has been linked to fatty liver disease or has, as he calls it, human foie gras. I mean, what a name, but fatty liver disease, right? When we're consuming excess fructose, we have this de novo lipogenesis in the hepatocytes, which end up causing this accumulation of fat um, in the liver. So ALT, the other transferase, or actually before I say that, um, you want 
if the, you want the number under 25, if it's over 25, uh, definitely speak to your, to your doctor about uh, further inquiry, maybe an ultrasound, or there'll be other, other things that they might talk to you about. Uh, same thing with um, AST. So that's the other transferase and that's aspartate aminotransferase. And this is a measure of mitochondrial function. So we talked about mitochondrial dysfunction um, today and AST levels, they will rise either with, um, um, with acute alcohol consumption, uh, even acetaminophen, um, consumption, like some people will have, um, have a hard time, um, detoxifying and metabolizing acetaminophen and also with hep, right? Hepatitis, any cause of hepatitis. And if AST is elevated, this is the acute. So I like to look at AST as like the acute, um, stressor to the liver. So if that's elevated, your liver is like either, you know, there's an infection or there's some sort of toxin related thing, either acetaminophen or other drugs or some, some kind of assault. If your ALT, the alanine, the, the, uh, ALT amino, pardon me, the alanine aminotransferase or ALT, this is more of a chronic metabolic assault, right? So this is more indicative of, um, fatty liver, potentially fatty liver accumulation. And of course, if both are elevated, then you really want to be doing further inquiry with your doctor, um, to look for like any other signs of, um, liver damage. So those are, those are some blood tests that you can run. Um, you can do a homo, uh, HOMA IR, which is a homeostatic model of assessment for insulin resistance. It's, it's a calculation. Uh, this assesses your risk for diabetes. It's basically, um, we're using a little bit of um, math here, but it's glucose. It's like your glucose level times your insulin level. Uh, and then you divide that by 405. And usually uh, the range, um, like anything less than 2.8 is, is considered excellent. Um, anything higher, um, or than 4.3, uh, is not great. 4.3 is, is often, um, kind of the mean that we see. We often see this as the average. So you want to, you want to get under 4.3. I would, I would say that, um, my preference for that would be like my, I would like it to be, you know, it's a little tighter for me. I would like it to be not just the average. I want you to be exceptional, but of course we want to take into account like familial history and, you know, there's a lot of things to take into account. So those are some of the, um, those are some of the action items that you can take in terms of blood lab. But really when we think about, um, when we think about sugar, it's, Maybe I hope, hopefully, if you've been listening to this and you're like, hot damn, like I don't want wrinkles and or cataracts and or no energy. Like I want to be training to be the best grandma that I can uh, and joining Stephanie because I already know that Stephanie's in the race. That's me. I am in the race to be the best grandmother ever for my kids. Um, maybe you want to think about trying to reduce your consumption of fructose. And while labeling issues on foods are really, really like, they don't necessarily have to delineate what they can just put carbohydrates. They don't have to put what kind of carbohydrates you can really mostly eliminate your fructose consumption by consuming whole foods. And I know that that can, um, it's easier said than done. And of course there are certain areas of the world where, uh, you know, it's, it's harder to get whole foods. It's much easier to buy processed foods. But the, the, the end, you know, in terms of what you can do here is vote with your fork instead of waiting every four years or however long your election cycle is where you're listening, you know, instead of going out and voting, um, for a candidate vote with your fork, vote with your wallet, you know, and, and this is the most beautiful thing about this is that your vote is tallied immediately. If you shop at a certain grocery store and they notice all of a sudden that there are more vegetables being purchased, well, they are going to rise up and meet that demand by purchasing more vegetables. And if they see, for example, that a boxed, you know, I don't know, some boxed you know, crackers or chips or cookies or whatever are not doing well, then they are going to put it on sale, sell it off and not restock it. And the great thing about this is that you get to vote, you know, if let's say you have three meals a day, you know, and seven days in a week, you vote 21 times a week, right? Every meal, every meal you're voting. 
And, you know, if you have, if you have access to, um, if you're lucky enough to have access to a local butcher or a local farmer's market or, you know, a fishmonger, like go and shop there. Avoid the big box stores because so often, even though uh, we didn't get into it in this, um, in this podcast, but so often they will claim it is, you know, Alaskan Polak or, you know, whatever it is. And it's really not from Alaska. It's from, you know, some, somewhere in China or, or whatever, or wherever it is and not necessarily, you know, blaming China, although different topic, different, different story, different time. Um, but we want, we want to be thinking about shopping local, supporting your local mom and pop shops. They have been hit incredibly hard. Um, and you know, food is in sometimes, sometimes food is expensive and I'm not, you know, I, I'm not, um, like saying that money isn't important. Money is absolutely important. And I think that one of the things that I've been talking about with my team is talking about how to help my women uh, or anybody who wants to learn about money and, and wealth creation. We, I'm, there's some things in the works there. I can't say too much about it now, but you know, one way or another, you're going to pay, right? You can pay the farmer, you can pay your local mom, pa grocer, uh, local mom, pa butcher, or you can pay the doctor, right? there's going to be, someone is being paid. Um, I would prefer to pay the local shop. And, and I know that I, um, have incredible, you know, living in a city, uh, where there's a lot of options. Of course, I feel very blessed and lucky to live in the, in the city and the area that I do. But like I said, it's not, like the only option is ever going to be only chips and crackers and cookies and nothing else. Um, so I encourage you to think about, um, to think about that. I invite you to think about that. Uh, maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't, I'd love to hear either way. And, um, I hope that you found this, um, this episode useful. I hope that you found, um, it valuable in terms of the science of geekiness that I didn't quite intend to go into, but went into anyway. And I hope that it's given you some actionable items around reducing, uh, fructose consumption, voting with your fork. And then if you need to get some labs to kind of understand where you are, which labs that you can go speak to your primary healthcare provider about. All right, my buddies, thank you so much for listening this far in, um, and we will see you very soon. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.